0: Everybody is projecting an identity onto her. So obviously
1: like big Britney fan.
0: And reading the yellow wallpaper.
1: Most important member of the Mickey Mouse Club, J.C. Chazay.
0: Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, and if you're seeking Amy, you're not going to find her in Milan, Italy, but you will find me.
1: (laughs) And I'm Melissa Hansen not a girl, not yet a woman in San Francisco, California.
0: <laughs> All right. We are reading The Woman in Me by Britney Spears, if you couldn't tell by our intros.
1: It's Britney, bitch.
0: And I don't know if this matters for this particular book, but there's going to be spoilers. We got a spoiler alert for this one. We're actually going to say, you know, that that she marries Kevin Federline. You know, if you were if you were wondering, she does.
1: Wow. I didn't see that one coming.
0: Yeah. And she gets freed.
1: Thank God.
0: Yeah. So if spoilers are important to you, read it first then come back.
1: Yeah. If you were, have not been a person in society for the past 30 years, go be a person in society and come back.
0: Yeah. We're just getting her take on things. We're not learning new information. I believe I'm, I'm in charge of doing the summary this month. I believe in you. Okay. <laughs> if you believe in me, count me in.
1: I will. Three, two, one. Okay.
0: Go. The woman in me is a story about a young girl who loves music and performing growing up in a financially inconsistent and unstable household in the American South. Her mother helps her get some early breaks, and she lands some really big parts, most notably in the Mickey Mouse Club alongside Ryan Gosling, Carrie Russell, Christina Aguilera, and some hip-hop fan named Justin Timberlake. She then attempts a music career... She meets Max Martin and the table literally goes up in flames and from the ashes of that fire, Hit Me Baby One More Time is born and she becomes like the biggest music act on the planet when she's only 16. And even though she's just a teenager, the media obsesses over her body and she's dating Justin Timberlake. Everything she does makes 24-hour news. Madonna is literally the only person who knows what's going on in her life. Paris Hilton is a good friend. JT breaks up with her via text message. She has a baby. She undergoes a series of postpartum depression incidents. The media pushes a narrative that she's a crazy person. Her family then puts her under a conservatorship and forces her to put on the same show every single night in Las Vegas. Then there's a free Britney movement and that changes things. And now she's able to write a book.
1: think that was a really good summary i don't understand why you did not refer to the most important member of the mickey mouse club jc chazay
0: oh yeah well i mean she barely talked about jc so i I didn't (laughs) think i needed to talk about him
1: how dare you he was clearly the most talented member of nsync uh
0: but she really didn't talk about him that much she just talked about how they cared about hip-hop and the backstreet boys didn't care about hip-hop and that's why nsync is better
1: yeah how do? feel about that because i feel like you being a white boy band and knowing that you're white in some ways is like almost better than pretending to be black
0: yeah or i don't know being obsessed with genuine
1: genuine i mean who isn't obsessed with genuine
0: (laughs) i don't know i think partly i i have to believe that britney spears knows that even though that that whole scene with justin trying to kiss up to genuine I think it was told in a loving way, but she must know that when you read that, you're like, oh, man, JT is such a loser. Like, she knows what she's doing there, where she's undermining him and all his credibility by putting those words in his mouth.
1: I mean, if she didn't know, Michelle Williams, white Michelle Williams, who read the audiobook, definitely knew.
0: Yeah, right. That, that was deserving of an Emmy.
1: But where should we start? There's, it's a short book, but I think it is a very rich tapestry Yes. that really talks about intergenerational trauma. Yes. Which I did not anticipate going into it.
0: I agree. I think it is a, actually a rich text. I want to start with just like why, personally, why I read it immediately. Yeah. Like I, I'm basically her age. I was in high school when Hit Me Baby One More Time dropped. I've been following her career since then. I've seen her and I saw the Las Vegas show and like every, like literally everybody else, I was one of those people who were like, oh man, she went crazy. Like when she shaved her head and like all those things, it's like she's she went crazy. Like she's a little bit crazy essentially for 20 years or whatever it's been, a little bit more than 20 years, I've heard everybody else tell me what to think about Britney Spears. Like, I watched the South Park episode. I listened to Fred Durst, like, paint a narrative about her. Like, I listened to literally all these people tell me what she is. And so when her book came out, I'm like, I owe it to her to, like, read this right away and actually get, like, if everybody else is telling the story of Britney Spears, like, I have to listen to Britney Spears tell the story of Britney Spears. I felt this way to a lesser extent with with Prince Harry, and I read that book too, but with Britney Spears, it was more, I don't know, like being American, being male, and being the same age as her. Like, it was in my world for a very long time.
1: Yeah. I also read the Prince Harry memoir, and I think it's actually a very interesting comparison point to this one, which I think we can talk about. But yeah, me coming into this, so I'm a little bit younger than Britney. Um... (laughs) Don't worry. We're the same age, James. <laughs> we're equally young. Yeah. And when my best friends growing up, Mary, Brittany was like her favorite artist. And Brittany and Justin Timberlake were her favorite couple. Um, she literally would sign documents as Mary Timberlake, where she would like pretend her last name was Timberlake. Like it was, I think this is because I was a little younger than Brittany. It had that level of fandom in middle school.
0: My, my little sister had two AOL screen names back in the day. One of them was Creek Freak for Dawson's Creek.
1: (laughs) Of course.
0: Michelle Williams also liked to make the link. And the other one was JT Rocks My World 88 (laughs) for Justin Timberlake. And I hope she listens to this.
1: That is so, I think what Mary's was Mary Hart's JT. I don't think that she put in the 1988, but it was implied. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: <laughs> the eighty-eight It yeah. had to be somewhere between eighty-seven and
1: eighty-nine. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um So obviously, like big Britney fan, but I remember maybe because I'm a little bit younger like being kind of scandalized as she got into like that toxic part of her career. And now I realize it's like a bop and it's amazing. Or I'm a Slave for You, I remember coming out and some girls dancing to it in the eighth grade variety show. And I'm like, is this appropriate? I literally thought, is this appropriate as like a Midwestern eighth grader? Like, should we be listening to this music? And like what a trip society did on us that like I was doing the same judgments to Britney that were like really bogging her down. I think that's the thing is like you read this and you're like oh my god I'm complicit in this.
0: Yeah and like obviously when I'm 16 or 17 or early in her career I didn't have the vocabulary that I do now for understanding the way that society needed her to both be a virgin and be hypersexualized at the same time and how like no human being can occupy the position that people wanted her to occupy. And so when it doesn't work, like when she has to rebel against that in like whatever possible way she can, then we have to paint her as up oh, the crazy. Like that's the other narrative we have for women. That's like you're either the virgin or the slut or you're crazy. And she like moves between them. And man, it's just rough to be Britney Spears.
1: And how we let Justin Timberlake get away with so much shit is what really gets me. And I think what's very interesting is I feel like Brittany is very nice to Justin, given everything in this book. She's just like, you know, I really loved him. I recognize like what he was, like the pressure he was under, which caused him to like encourage me to have an abortion that led him to talking about how I cheated on him, even though he cheated on me all the time, but I let him portray me as this harlot when he was the one who was actually like going crazy on the town with all saints. (laughs) It's so interesting how she almost like she has a capacity for empathy that I don't think I would have in her situation.
0: Right. There was so much of the book where she was like, I really am grateful for the story of me and Justin and the time we got to have in Florida. And yeah, I got the sense that she like genuinely looks back at a lot of that with fondness.
1: Yeah. It's definitely one of those things where she's like, it's not that I didn't want him to have his freedom. I wanted myself to have equivalent freedom.
0: Exactly, exactly. And the fact that the media, like when he did Cry Me a River, that they they were so eager to jump on the, uh, oh yeah, Britney is the is the devil here. I, I can't think of the equivalent that she did as a response to him, but certainly the world never painted him as inconsistent or unfaithful or whatever.
1: No, I mean, her, her response to... Crimea River was every time, and that's basically a I miss you, I feel terrible that we ended song. Mm. It's her capacity for openness and like grace is something that I just like don't understand. Yeah. But maybe one way to start going through that is I think this intergenerational trauma piece, because she does open up talking about her grandparents, right. which I didn't know anything about. And so I was very surprised that we started with her grandparents, and then it became very clear why she started with her grandfather June
0: right so one of the emotional climaxes of the book is when she has to stop hanging out with her cruel grandmother because of a minor car accident
1: yeah that accident I did highlight one thing from that section because I thought this line was very interesting and it kind of like sets up the rest of the book which is I didn't understand how being with someone I loved could be considered dangerous
0: yeah it does set up a lot of the other relationships in the book
1: but yeah so her dad's dad is super abusive and terrible yeah he is physically abusive sexually abusive verbally abusive and so britney has like a lot of empathy for her father growing up in that situation but like clearly he has internalized the sort of upbringing he had and instead of like being like i'm not going to be like my dad he's like this is the only way i know how to be a father and he sort of does the same thing to his own children
0: yeah and just the control like that there is this like uncertain elements like right so He grows up not really knowing what to expect from his father, like the the descriptions of how his father could react to something in wildly dramatic ways and not really knowing what that thing is. And then Britney Spears' father sort of reacting to that where it's like he needs to have control over everything.
1: Yeah. And I think it really reflects how like he was like very critical of Britney's older brother. Mm hmm. And all the sports that he played and all those sorts of things. And so her older brother didn't feel like he was ever good enough. And then, of course, for Britney's career as well, mm-hmm. that it was a like constant, like, slut shaming, weight shaming, all those sorts of things. And that so much of her childhood was her. She talks about this a lot in the early parts of the book is, like, she wants both to be seen, but also to hide. And there is freedom in both being seen and there's freedom in hiding, And she alternates in between which way she is seeking freedom based on like what she needs during that time.
0: Yeah. And I feel like we've seen this with other pop stars, too, that this is a pretty standard narrative. Like it's the same with uh, Taylor Swift when she disappeared before Reputation, Uh especially the ones who think about what they do as art where like they need to retreat from it to like figure out and get some perspective and then find a way to return and be transformed. And I know like Taylor Swift has talked about how female recording artists have to reinvent themselves much more than male artists need to reinvent themselves. And so that's why one of the highlights of this memoir for me was how Madonna plays the sort of like Dumbledore Yoda figure who just drifts in from time to time is literally the only person capable of giving Britney Spears advice because she's the only person that could possibly understand what it's like to be the biggest recording artist on the planet, the constant need for reinvention, and also just like how to take control of that narrative. Like Madonna, after years of experience, knows how to just be like, no, I don't like this outfit. I'm not going to do this thing today, even though everybody's here for it.
1: Yeah. And she also mentions another inspiration for her is like Reese Witherspoon, which I think is like very interesting. And also just like Reese Witherspoon owns a production company called Type A Productions. (laughs) And of course, like, Reese is well-known for that time that she got super drunk and said to a cop, do you know who I am? But also, like, what a great place as a woman to be like, do you know who I am?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> to a position of authority. Obviously, this is only a white woman could do this. Yeah. But, like, there is, like, that sort of ownership of your own identity, of your own narrative, of your own persona that, like, Reese is able to have and that Madonna is able to have that, like, Brittany can't have. And to your point about, like, the need for reinvention, like, that was almost the most cruel things that her father did to her is like forcing her to do these Las Vegas residencies and the tours and would not let her change anything right. ever for years.
0: Right. And all her creative energy just could go nowhere. Like she had to just stay in the same role over and over and over again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like this trapped, and she talks about this a lot in the book, about how she's like, I constantly feel like I'm a Benjamin Button.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I was able to grow up to a certain age, and then I was forced to regress back into a child, even though I'm in the body of a woman. Yeah. The woman in me is like a very, like, thesis statement of a title, um, where she's like, it was important for me that I could find the part of me that was a woman. And, like, the part where she's like, she's like, I'm glad that Justin talked to that we had sex. She's like, yeah, I was a woman the whole time, guys. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Like, you were the ones who were making me be a child. Like, all I've ever wanted was to be a woman, and all society and my father have ever wanted me to be is a child.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was talking about, too. Where Like, everybody is projecting an identity onto her, uh, and they're all having these stories about her. And she, as a 16-year-old, when it starts anyway, or when, like, the superstardom part of it starts, obviously she's got some celebrity status even before that. Like, she just trusts that... This is the way that it's supposed to be. This is a stupid comparison, but because uh, it's like what I teach, I'm like forced to make it is oftentimes when like a king in the early modern period inherits a throne and they're like 13, they have a council of people that actually run the country for them. And then when they are capable of running it themselves, there's already these habits built where it's just like they never actually break out of that. And you can see Britney Spears like being part of Mickey Mouse club like they she just sort of is the vehicle through which a bunch of men make money and so even when she becomes an adult there's something that just like that is natural to that so when Madonna makes a statement like nope the world actually revolves around me if I don't want to go on today I'm not going to go on today that like shocks her because It's like, oh, yeah, I I actually am the one with power. Like, everybody's here for me, not for these other people.
1: Yeah. I kept thinking, and I can't remember if this was from Jeanette McCurdy's book or if it was something that the actress who played Matilda said, but it was something about being a child star, where to be a successful child star, you are someone who is able to follow directions. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes it very hard to make a transition, is you are almost incentivized to have everybody make decisions for you and just follow the rules, which does not make you necessarily a good artist as an adult.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: And I thought about that a lot in the book. And then I also, there's that um, common thing that people say, which is like, you stay the age you were when you became famous which I think you see in Taylor Swift, like the kind of fights that she has, it's like when we read the Allie Hazelwood book and it's like, why are all these grad students acting like they're 15 (laughs) sitting on each other's laps? (laughs) Why is Taylor Swift still getting into fights that I would have like stopped getting into these fights in high school? (laughs) Yeah. Because it's just at that point, that's when you're surrounded by all of these people who are incentivized to keep you in a certain way in order to keep the money-making machine aligned.
0: Right. A thing Mm -hmm. that is profitable. Yeah. A thing that plays well. Yeah, and I think I think Taylor Swift is also a good parallel because the world wanted her to be the sweet white lady when she was doing red, but then like post-Donald Trump, like there's like a different, we need her to be something different now, and she's now doing this like postmodern, here's how I craft the image of Taylor Swift, and here are the errors that I had to transform myself and like that she's... Basically making it clear that she is a performance, but the, and even though her whole brand is based on being genuine, now it's like a genuine performance. Uh, I don't know. She's like doing something really interesting, and it's interesting to backwards apply what we've learned through Taylor Swift's trajectory to people like Britney Spears and Madonna, and see how they have to constantly like because the time period demands that the biggest female star on the planet be a certain thing. They have to then match that thing.
1: Yeah. And I think also, like, Taylor to a certain benefits being, like, later on. Yeah. I think, like, where Taylor is able to take down all of her exes and Kanye and Scooter and Scott, like, Britney Spears at that time, if she had come out against Justin Timberlake and been like, he cheated on me, there are photos with him in the car with a girl from All Saints, people would be just like, oh, she's just, like, bitter, and also she, it's worse that a woman cheated. Taylor is benefiting by being generations later a generation later. Yeah, for sure. But I think it also says something about like her childhood, like Taylor has a very supportive family unit. Yeah. Her dad was involved in her business early on, but he's a good businessman. Yeah. I yeah. think that's the other thing is like Brittany's father is like in many ways like a failed businessman who has a lot of insecurity because of how he was raised about his own worth as a human. Mm-hmm. Um, which Taylor Swift's dad doesn't have. So he doesn't necessarily need to get validation through his daughter.
0: Yeah, I learned recently that Taylor Swift's father owned 3% of the record company that signed her. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Big Machine Records. <laughs> yeah, I mean, d- definitely um, growing up wealthy helps you have a career. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting because, like, you can just see everything about her father that led to him seeking the conservatorship and then relishing in it. Because later on she does talk about, she's like, you know, I was being a little crazy and wild. She talks about how she was like driving a car and she like almost drove off a cliff. Right. There are people that could be in conservatorship for like two months, like the the length of a rehab. She's like, I clearly was like on TV shows and in Vegas and having concerts and recording. I was capable of running my own life, but yeah, maybe at that point I needed a slight intervention. I did not need 13 years of an intervention where all I was eating was like chicken and canned vegetables. Um,
0: Before before recording this, I was discussing the things I was going to talk about and I read... The Woman and Me, at the exact same time that I was teaching a short story unit in my class and reading The Yellow Wallpaper, and I was like, these are basically the same story, and I'm going to like make this connection during the podcast, and everybody's going to think I'm really clever. <laughs> and then reading some reviews of The Woman in Me, literally everyone mentions this, and I am not clever at all. I'm just like one of many people who reads books, and <laughs> anybody that has ever read The Yellow Wallpaper had the same idea that I had. But that doesn't mean I don't still want to talk about it, because I think a lot of how I thought about the book was informed by the fact that I was teaching this short story. So, for those people at home who don't know, The Yellow Wallpaper is a story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, published in 1892. Uh, The narrator is a new mother who experiences postpartum depression, and her husband, who is also her physician prescribes the resting cure, which basically like forced her to be isolated in a like gothic style house in the countryside. He puts her in, in the nursery. So like the idea that Britney Spears felt like she was being treated like a child, like this is reflected in the yellow wallpaper too, where she's put in a in a nursery. And she's not allowed to go out. She's not allowed to write. And so she's a woman with an abundance of creative energy. Like she she tells the story in the first person. So she's like narrating it in a diary. And all of her creative energy then goes into understanding and interpreting the yellow wallpaper in the room that she's in. And because she's like physically constrained, her brain has to, in order to like be her authentic self or like literally just be a human, her brain has to disconnect from reality and so the story ends with her tearing down the wallpaper which is like symbolic of her tearing down the things that like tethered her to reality uh she frees an imaginary woman inside the wallpaper and then gets to like be her authentic creative self but that scares the hell out of her husband who then passes out when he sees her and he walks into the room and like this is just obviously the story of britney spears where her father is both her physician slash business manager whatever confines her to a show in las vegas and her creative energy like has to go somewhere and now we call her crazy but like in the same way that the yellow wallpaper the break from reality is like it's a happy ending seeing britney spears on instagram acting kind of kooky that's like a happy ending for me (laughs) because it's like it's her actually just like unmediated by anything else, just putting her weirdo self out there and, like, relishing in it and, like, feeling herself. And it made me, like, really understand. Not, I guess, like, there's a misogynistic, like, you know, women be crazy thing, but it also, like, really made me understand that, like, there is no escape from the reality of the, like, patriarchal systems that controlled her. And so the only way to actually break out is to, like, go full, just be... And if that's weird, then like be weird, shave the head and do whatever.
1: Yeah, like how are you going to get control back um, is an interesting thing. And yeah, definitely I thought about The Yellow Wallpaper. I also thought a lot about A Dollhouse and The Awakening, obviously. Yeah. To your point of like, you know, bitches be crazy. You didn't say bitches, but I'll say bitches. Bitches be crazy. (laughs) Maybe they're crazy because you made them crazy.
0: (laughs) Right. Like what is a rational response to this? Right. Like honestly, what would a rational response to what she went through when she was 19, what does that look like? What does it look like?
1: Yeah. And I think even when reading the book, there are places where I'm coming in with this like thing of like, well, is this how like a, a good mom acts? There are these parts of me where I'm like, just been programmed by society to be like, how is this acceptable that Britney is like doing things like this? And she lost custody for her kids. It must've been for a reason. I k- kept thinking about like "Yell wallpaper, a dollhouse awakening. And I'm just like, man, when you push like a woman to her limit, the only way out is to like tear it all fucking down. Yeah. Is for you to kill yourself, which she talks about considering multiple times. The awakening. Yeah. The awakening abandoning your family a dollhouse there's also in the dollhouse a whole scene about how she's like having to do a dance in front of everybody and like whether or not it's acceptable or not i'm like that's also obviously like a britney like they're just like when you push someone to a limit it's actually not crazy
0: no it's actually the most human thing she could do it's the most sane response is to break from the reality that is seeking to control you and like live in some other reality and especially for with these people that have all this creative energy. Like the woman in the yellow wallpaper, from the minute she gets to the house, she's like, Oh, this seems kind of haunted and like she's obviously like got this wild imagination that needs to be put to use. And obviously Britney Spears has got an overabundance of creative imagination and like loves the performance of self and all these things. And if she's if that's stifled, if she's only allowed to perform one type of self or she's forced to perform a self that is like impossible to perform. Then, like, of course she's going to... I don't know. It's like... it For me, it's like the rational thing. It's not the crazy thing.
1: Right. Like, she didn't, she didn't have an option.
0: And so I think it would make sense then that, like, one of her responses is to write a book. And again, this is the same as with Prince Harry, where, like, you get all these people who want to put you in a box or, like, control your narrative and tell the world how they're supposed to feel about you. At some point, like, one of the release valves that's available... These days is to write a memoir.
1: Yeah, the the parallel to Prince Harry is also really interesting because in both ways, their fathers are to sent making money or at least public collateral off of their child's image. Mm. And at the same time, both of them talk about how they're like given like a limited stipend, right? right. In order to like live like <laughs> I'll never forget Prince Harry, he's a Maximista from TJ Maxx and talks at length about his TJ Maxx purchasing strategies yeah and both of them are to a certain extent like portrayed as crazy in the media or like out of control Mm -hmm. and there was a need for them to reclaim their identity because they were not allowed to be who they want like prince harry is like the reason i joined the military all i wanted to do was like to take the same risks for my country that my fellow soldiers were taking and instead i was putting their life in danger
0: Right, and this is just by virtue of his birth. Like, it's not because of anything he did. It's just by virtue of his birth. Yeah. From the minute he was born, he's expected to be a certain thing. And then he has an authentic urge to be something else. And it's, impo- it's like, literally impossible.
1: There's obviously, like, a, a difference. I did think about, like, birth order a little bit in the comparison of the two. I think Brittany, in many ways, tries to also have empathy for her, her younger sister.
0: Oof, I don't know, man. By the end... <laughs> Jamie Lynn does not come out okay in this one.
1: The problem with this is I'm an eldest child. So like, I also don't have empathy for Jamie Lynn. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I wonder if, if we were having this conversation with a younger sibling, if they could read this memoir and have the empathy for Jamie Lynn.
1: But I also think it's interesting where both Jamie Lynn and her mother write memoirs before Brittany does. There is this element of like controlling the narrative that they both do to get their story out there. But going back to Prince Harry, because I think it's relevant, what I think is interesting is Britney's memoir is, like, very short. Yeah. It's kind of like someone read her Wikipedia page and then just, like, asked her a couple questions about each line. Yeah. And then it takes, like, basically a six-hour audiobook. Prince Harry's is so long. Like, it's every tiny detail that you could ever think. I mean,
0: Britney didn't get frostbite on her todger. So... (laughs) You can can wipe out a (laughs) hundred pages right there.
1: I literally was going to bring that one up. I'm like, did I need this?
0: Did I need this story?
1: But I do think there is something about like, how do you portray yourself in a narrative to get sympathy and empathy? Harry goes the tact of details. He's like this is a time where I accidentally used a racial slur and then I had to like learn about the Holocaust <laughs> and I dramatically apologize now over the next 10 pages about the Holocaust and being racist. And Brittany kind of just like, cause I think there are things that she could say, like there are a lot of things in the courts where how she lost custody of her yeah. kids or things like that. Like she could be like, Hey, like when I drove with a kid on my lap, when their pop robes are following me, this is what was going on in my head. I recognize it wasn't Okay. She, she just doesn't talk about it at
0: all. No, I mean, she doubles down on that one. And, like, I, I was with her, right? Like, she's being, yeah. she actually feels like she's in danger. She's got a lot going on. And so she gets out of there as fast as she can and people take some pictures. Yeah. I think that the moment where she apologizes the most for something she did was when she realized she was mean to some contractors who were putting in a marble floor for her. Yeah. She's like, okay, there, I lost in love. But, like, that is not something I knew. Like, she's apologizing yeah. for stuff that she doesn't even need to because nobody knows that this happened. She just brings it up, and she's like, and that was my bad. I shouldn't have been that mean to them.
1: Or the when she was mean to Jamie Lynn's co-star because Jamie Lynn had lied about the co-star being mean to her.
0: Right. Yeah, there wasn't a here's a thing that happened publicly now I, I realized that, that that was not the best reaction I needed to. There was very little of that. It was all the stuff we didn't even know about that she was apologizing for.
1: Yeah, I think though the the lack of detail in Britney's memoir I think creates more of like an atmosphere. It's more like atmospheric memoir to me than like Prince Harry's, which like felt like we're going through everything. My ghostwriter clearly like wants to win some award with this.
0: I think part of how Britney's is able to get that consistent atmosphere which begins right away where she's like, you know, laying outside by herself singing a song, um, is because it's so short. Like, because Prince Harry's is so long, it can't keep a consistent tone or atmosphere. And Britney's can because it's like, I don't know, 250 pages or something.
1: Yeah. I do wonder if we would receive the memoir differently if she was angrier and gave more details. Like, I do think that she has like enormous goodwill by society right now, deservedly. And I would not have been like, if she had done like an angry memoir of like, Justin forced me to have an abortion and then told the world that I cheated on him when he was sleeping with that girl from All Saints. I would be like, yeah, tell it. Like, but there is something where she is still. (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is like, actually how she feels versus like, she's very careful about still being careful and nice about what her legacy and what her image is. Yeah, like I wonder—is this her true self? Is she getting to like say what she truly thinks, or was this still being softened by editors, lawyers, things like that?
0: Yeah, and I think even I—I I just caught myself wanting to give an opinion on that, but then I realized I'd just be going down the same path that I did twenty years ago, where it's like I think the Brittany, and like we I mean, just—I'm <laughs> just gonna take her at her word this time.
1: Yeah. It is sad though, because she talks a lot about how much she's happy to be with her husband, and now they're getting divorced.
0: Yeah, that was subtext. Like how happy she seemed to be—the potential for them to have a baby together and for them to be parents together—it is sad to to think that that's that's over again.
1: Yeah, I am curious about her relationship with her sons. I wanted to hear more about that. I don't think I'm, I'm entitled to it, but I think that's been a big thing in the press. Whether they've been, like, alienated by Kevin or the very fact that, like, their mom was basically, like, a drugged-up slave for 13 yeah. years, they don't have a good relationship. And almost, like, her wanting to have another kid is to, like, be able to do it again without—with with the freedom to actually be a parent. Yeah. And, like, undo that generational trauma. Because I think that there still is an element where her sons are part of this intergenerational trauma to the point of, like, even her father— try to assault one of them.
0: Right, and I'm being locked in the, the bathroom with her being afraid that they're going to be taken. Like, that stuff stays stays with the kids. Mm-hmm. Like, seeing their mother that afraid. And, yeah, no, it's... I hope everybody's okay. Yeah. Like, I, I hope that, like, the process of writing the memoir and everything that Brittany realizes the nature of this generational trauma and that getting it out there and, like, stated openly that... They could begin the process of healing.
1: I did enjoy that it was, like, Jamie, her father, sending her to that rehab center where she finally found out about the Free Britney movement. Yeah. I was like, that's what you deserve. You try to control her, and she's (laughs) going to, like, find the freedom to escape.
0: And, yeah, when she learned about the Free Britney movement, it feels like she really got her voice back and... You know, then the end of the book, she really drives home the themes that were throughout the book, just about the importance of singing, songwriting, um, performance generally, and that uh, and it's sort of the same re the same realization that she has when she watches Madonna, that she's like, wait, I have an audience, I have power here, I can speak, um, and we get the whole. Um, My, you know, your tongue is your sword connections. And this was true of the Mariah Carey memoir. It's like gets into art theory in a weird way where it's about the like artist audience relationship and that bond between the artist and the the audience. And I don't know if I subscribe to the type of art theory that appears in the meaning of Mariah Carey. But it's certainly fascinating to hear it from somebody that has... Just an army of people with a parasocial relationship with them, and the way that they conceptualize that relationship is really fascinating.
1: Are you talking about like stand culture or just
0: so like she articulates throughout the meaning of Mariah Carey that she feels like there's a very close connection between her and her fans, and that she's like tapped into exactly what culture needs from her at any moment. And that the movie producers Mm -mm. think that they do, but like it takes an artist to actually be able to see and tap into it. And so when she says, I'm going to work with ODB, they're like, that's very bad for your image. You're supposed to be the like girl next door swinging on a tire swing. You shouldn't like make that direction. But then she works with ODB that song is just absolutely massive and it creates a whole new audience for her and she's right. And then that like validates her. And that's not so much about what the uh, woman in me is about, but I feel like there was particularly at the end still the sense that like there is an actual real connection between the artist and the fan base and that they're tapped into each other and she like understands what they need from her and the fans know what she needs and that was all throughout the Mariah Carey one as well. And I it's it's fascinating because Yeah. It's like very difficult to understand or empathize with somebody that has that large of an audience and like how they conceptualize their audience. Like they have to conceptualize it in some way. But like those numbers are unbelievable. They're literally yeah, yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah. yeah she yeah. can pack stadiums across the world, like multiple stadiums.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: like she feels like she's speaking to them and they feel like she's speaking to them. And that's strange. That's just strange.
1: But to your point, they also need, like, the artistic freedom to do that, which Britney had early in her career. Like, she talks about if she had gone with what the studio wanted her to do for Baby One More Time, it might not have been successful. Like, so much of it was that music video, which was her conception. Right. I think Britney talks about this. She's like, I feel like my fans knew when I was suffering, and that's why they were able to start this movement. Like, it does go both ways. Exactly. She does talk about performing and how, like, the energy of performing is like something that cannot be matched. And there is this element of Britney throughout her memoir where she's looking for like this bigger thing. Like she talks in the prologue about like lying on the rocks in Louisiana woods and feeling God. Mm -hmm. She talks about after her breakup with Justin going to Arizona and she's like, did I have a paranormal experience? I felt something bigger. And that she just lost that connection a bit to her fans. And then I think to God throughout the conservatorship.
0: That's true. You're right. It totally relates to her belief in God as well. That there's this like faith that she has this connection with fans, which feels really abstract. Like, even discussing her fans, they're obviously a bunch of individuals, but like she conceptualizes them as some like homogenous, to some extent, group and God. And there's like something about that that makes conceptual sense to me. Like, both these things are abstract, they're like bigger than one can imagine. Like, it is impossible for Britney Spears to have the number of two-way relationships that it would be required. And that, like, that same incomprehensibility has a relationship to, like, one's faith in God. Like, faith that that relationship exists makes sense in both directions.
1: It has to be faith in something larger because so much of her one-to-one relationships are so toxic and she can't trust. Yeah. And so there needs to be a trust in something larger if you don't have a trust in something local.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: Should we end with, what's your favorite Britney Spears song?
0: Oh, this is going to... Because
1: you've actually been to one of her concerts. I haven't been to any of her concerts.
0: I'm not going to be able to pick one. Just a heads up on that. (laughs) So Fair. I'm going to go with the one that, like, for some reason, reminds me the most of that early 2000s, late 90s maybe bit. And that's sometimes Sometimes I Run, Sometimes I Cry. Like that, it just, like, feels like the nostalgia. Yeah. And so that one... But then... I can't not talk about how every single time Toxic comes on and it's got that very mm. dissonant intro that's, like, really fast. Da, 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 and then, the, mm, yeah. And, like, how those two sounds are just so completely different and yet fused together. Like, every time I, I have to, like, pause on Spotify and be like, how incredible is this? Mm-hmm. Like, it is just a really incredible intro That sets a very specific tone that I didn't even know exists and I still can't articulate what it is. Yeah. And then the song just like fulfills the promise of those opening weird notes. So as an artwork, Toxic, but as a personal nostalgia thing sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think I'll double down on Toxic. It's, I mean, it's the only one that you want a Grammy for. Which is one it's crazy, but two, it deserves all the Grammys because it's such a strong song. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is something magical about that first album. Like, there's a song on it called "Email My Heart," <laughs> and there's just something sweet about like <laughs> I'm not saying "Email My Heart" is like a great song, but there's something about that concept <laughs> yeah. that like makes me feel like nostalgic and like it's a different time. Yeah. And so much of that album. Oh my god, I forgot. You drive me crazy.
0: Ugh. Incredible. Where they had
1: like they they had the tie-in with the movie "You Drive Me Crazy" with Melissa Joan Hart, yep. a guy from Entourage. Oh my god!
0: I mean, the, the music video for "Stronger," where she's dancing with the chair. Yeah, those are that early stuff is really. She was very good. She was very good.
1: Yeah, I remember when the "Oops" music video came out. It like was like a cultural moment. Yeah. Yes. exactly. You no one can see us, but we're dancing. We're doing the heart heart thing. yeah
0: and because you can't even I can't even hear the words oops I did it again without doing the heart dance thing
1: I always think about that scene from Will and Grace where they're like learning the dance it's like Jack and Grace and I'm just like just so much of it is iconic yeah and it is hard to pick just one I would say okay favorite music video is the oops music video favorite song is toxic
0: perfect all right let's end it with that what do you think we should read next month
1: well, while I did love doing a memoir, I feel like maybe we should go back to some fiction and some IB questions. Mm-hmm. This one, I feel like, was pretty serious. And we we tend to read a lot of, like, rom-commy, rom drammy things here. And all of her romances, unfortunately, ended poorly. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can do something with a happy ending.
0: Yeah. Also, we've got the benefit of recording this in December and all the Goodreads awards came out. And so... Let's just take their advice and read the best YA, which is from a known romance author that we've read before, Allie Hazelwood. So let's read the, the Check and Mate book that just won best YA of 2023.
1: I love it. I'm assuming mate is has a double meaning here. Ooh,
0: that's clever. Sa- save your insights for, <laughs> save your insight for the episode. Yeah, sorry. <laughs>
1: Okay, I'm excited. That sounds great.
0: Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Goodreads Choice Awards Best Young Adult Fiction of 2023. Check and Nate by Allie Hazelwood. See you then. Before recording this, I was talking to our editor,
1: Editor and producer.
0: Yeah. Editor, producer, wife, friend. (laughs)